Hello, welcome back to our class on 1st and 2nd Peter. This is our third week and we'll be turning to the second half of the first chapter of 1st Peter. And so if you have a Bible, take a minute to uh, turn over to that book of 1st Peter. My name is Bob Lawrence. I'm one of the Bible class teachers here at the Anchorage Church of Christ. And I appreciate you taking time to join us for this Bible study going through 1st and 2nd Peter. Those of you who watched last week know that we spent a lot of time there in the first half of chapter 1 in 1 Peter talking about this word faith. And Peter, here in this introduction to the letter, praises God. And in the midst of giving this blessing to God, he says that you possess something that is more valuable than gold. In fact, Peter says that just like gold can be tested to prove its genuineness, your faith will be tested. Just as gold can be tested, you will be put through what he calls later in chapter 4, a fiery test. You will be mistreated. You will be maligned. You will be misunderstood. But all of those trials that you go through because you are a follower of Christ are just allowing your faith to be proven, to be authentic, to be true. And because of this, Peter says, you can rejoice. You haven't seen Jesus, Peter says, but you love him. You haven't seen him, but you have a firm conviction in him. You believe in him. And then he says, because of this, you have an inexpressible joy because you are receiving the goal, the end, the whole purpose of your faith, which is the salvation of your very self the salvation of your souls. And so there are two words that come up here in 1 Peter that are important to spend some time thinking about. The first of those words is the word faith. And the second word, which we turn to this week, is the word salvation. So Peter ended last week there in verse 9 saying that you are receiving the goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Now what is the word saved? mean? Certainly we use the word saved quite a bit and it can have different connotations. We save money, we save time. When it comes time for dessert, we save room. Uh, Usually we use the word save in that context, meaning that we're reserving something or holding something dear. But saved also, many times, carries this idea of rescue. When a person is saved, we think of them being rescued. And so a person can be saved from a burning building or saved from drowning or uh, saved from some medical or healthcare condition. And so when we hear this word saved in scripture, oftentimes we assign to it that second meaning, that idea of something being rescued. It's as if uh, God recognizing that the world is in some form of cardiac arrest because of sin He sends his son like a cosmic paramedic with lights blazing into the world to save the world in this this dramatic rescue. And that's not wrong. It's It's a good illustration in that it shows the nature of God saving the world. But it's not complete. You know, if a physician saves a person who is otherwise dying from an illness... Uh, we wouldn't say that the person is restored back to health until they leave the hospital and they go home. And if you understand that there's a difference between being saved and being restored, then you'll be able to put those two words together 
and, and more fully understand what the word saved means in the New Testament. So anytime you run into this word in the New Testament, really what should come to mind is not just the idea of rescue. Certainly God saving the world has that sense of rescue, of being delivered from God's wrath, being delivered from sin and, and being rescued. But it also carries this idea of restoration. God not only saves us from something deadly, he also restores us to the way that we were meant to be in the first place. And that is a critical, a critical thing to understand anytime you meet this word saved or salvation in the New Testament. Uh, think of it not just as a rescue. Think of it as God restoring people back to the way they were meant to be in the first place. And so Peter ended last week by saying that you have an inexpressible joy because you are receiving the very goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls, the rescue and the restoration of you to being the person that God made you to be from the beginning. And then we see a transition in the next passage where Peter says, uh, concerning this salvation, there are two groups of people that are, are clamoring to see how God is going to pull this off. The first group of people are the prophets, those who spoke years ago, even thousands of years ago, about the coming of God's Christ, of the Messiah who would save the world. And the prophets long to look to see who is this person that the Spirit of God was pointing them towards uh, as they prophesied. And the second group of people are the angels. The angels long to look into these things. And so Peter, before he turns to the passage that we read today, Peter uh, gives you the image of two people peering, or two groups of people peering on. Think of them as kids who are, are sneaking up to the window to look in and see what's going on. And so on one side you have these prophets of old and then the other group of people are the very angels who are uh, looking on to see how God is going to save the world. Now, to understand the passage that we're about to read, I think there are two other places in the Bible we need to go. So if you'll permit a little bit of a biblical scavenger hunt, I, I want to give you some foundational information that will be helpful, and it will allow the passage that you're about to read to just leap off the page at you. The first piece of information to pass on comes from the Old Testament. And to find this, you have to turn all the way back to one of those first books of the Bible. You run into Genesis, Exodus. Really what we're looking for is the book of Leviticus. It's that third book in your Bible. And the book of Leviticus has a long list of laws these are the laws that were given by God specifically to Jewish people to explain why they were going to be different or how they would be different than any other culture around them. And if you look at Leviticus chapter 11 and you read through the laws there, you see specifically that the Jewish people had laws about what they could eat. In fact, they divided their food into two different food groups, if you will. And the first group were groups of foods that were clean. These were animals that could be eaten. And then they had other animals that were called unclean. These were animals that were not to be touched and not to be eaten. And there's a whole list of laws of how you tell the difference between a clean animal and an unclean animal. You could eat an animal if it had a split hoof and it chewed the cud, 
But if it only chewed the cud and didn't have a split uh, a foot, then, then that's unclean. Don't touch that. Uh, or if it had a split foot, but it didn't chew the cud, well, that's unclean. Don't touch that kind of animal. And so you could eat beef, but you can't eat pigs. And it has to do with those laws. There were also laws about which birds you can eat. You know, you can eat certain birds, which are probably healthy to eat, but don't eat uh, animals like vultures or eagles. Uh, there are certain birds you can't eat. And, and even if you go fishing, there are certain uh, animals that swim in the water that you can eat, specifically those that have scales and fins. But if it doesn't have scales and fins, don't eat it. Those are unclean. And so there was this clear division between which foods were clean and which ones were unclean. And God was, with these laws, hammering into the people that they were to be different than all the other cultures around them, even down to the specifics of what they would eat and what they would not eat. And, and most people believe that these laws that, that God gave to the people of Israel was really a part of hammering into them just how different they were than the rest of the world. They were God's children. They were His. They were to be different. They were to be separate. They weren't to be like the common uh, people. Uh, they were set apart, and it even came down to what they ate. And the people of Israel took that very seriously. They saw themselves as different than the cultures around them. And those that took following God seriously took very seriously their inheritance as God's children, and they would obey very specifically those laws about what they could eat or, or didn't eat. Well, this is what brings us back to Peter. If you now transition over to the New Testament, here you have to fast forward through really uh, thousands of years and then also a lot of pages to get to the New Testament and turn over to the book of Acts, which is a history book of the early church. And, and you have to go all the way to Acts chapter 10. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this story, this is a great place just to hit pause and go back and read the whole story in Acts chapter 10. I'll do my best to give you a, a summary, but it's it's going to be really uh, a poor summary compared to, to reading the event itself. But it's in Acts chapter 10 that we see Peter going to the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea in a, a city named Joppa to spend time with a guy named Simon, who was a tanner. And, and so Peter's going uh, to that house uh, really to visit uh, with some others who are with him. And then up further north, there is a Roman centurion. So this is a Gentile. This is not a Jewish person. It's a Roman soldier who has a dream. Now, this Roman soldier believes in God and wants to do what's right. And while he's praying, he has his vision. And in the vision, the angel says, send someone down to Joppa, ask for a guy named Simon Peter, and then bring him up. And, and he has something to tell you. Well, at the same time that the centurion had this dream, uh, Simon Peter has, shows up in Joppa. And we're told there he goes up on the roof to pray, and it's about noon. So he's hungry, and, and there are other people in the house who are preparing the meal. And, of course, it takes some time to prepare lunch. And so Peter says, well, I'm going to go up uh, you know, top to pray while you guys make lunch. And so Peter goes up, and he's praying. And while he's praying, while he's hungry, you know, in the midst of this prayer, he has a vision. And in the vision, he sees this large sheet being let down from heaven. And in this sheet are different types of animals and birds and reptiles. And what Peter notices is that those animals were unclean. But then he hears a voice from heaven say something that is unexpected. And the voice says, Peter, you're hungry? Rise and eat. 
And Peter looks at these animals and he says back, as if it were a test of his faith, of his devotion to God, he says, I will not, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is unclean. What came back to mind for him were these laws in Leviticus uh, chapter 11. And Peter said, I will not eat anything that is unclean. And then he hears the voice from heaven say, Peter, do not call anything unclean or common that I have made clean. And that happened three different times. And I'm sure Peter was thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, it was about the time the vision was over that uh, he hears a knock at the door. And, and so Peter comes out of you know, the vision and they go down to the door and standing at the door was a Roman soldier and some servants who said, our boss, the centurion, sent us down here to find a guy named Peter. Who's, who, is, who is that? And Peter says, that's me. And he says, I'm supposed to go with you. And, and so Peter goes with that group and they make their way all the way up to Caesarea. And so it's really the next day they show up when Peter walks in and he sees this centurion and both of them have had this amazing experience where they've heard something from God and they're meant to meet each other. And the centurion seeing Peter falls down and he starts worshiping Peter. And Peter says, stand up, I'm a man, <laughs> just like you. And then they swap stories and they each tell each other about the dream that they had. And as they're swapping the stories, Peter says, ah, I see it now. What God has taught me is that I am not to call any man unclean or, and he used this word, common. And that was, that was the point that God had made to Peter in the vision. I'm not to call anyone common or unclean. Now, the word common is sort of opposite of the word holy. So remember, God was hammering into the people that they were to be set apart, that they were to be holy. And Peter was being taught that you can call animals clean and unclean, there are animals, things that you eat, that may be holy and unholy. But when it comes to people, don't call anyone common. Don't call anyone unholy or unclean, uh, especially those that God has made clean. And so Peter uh, tells the centurion the, the story of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The Holy Spirit comes down and fills everyone, you know, there in the room and then uh, the centurion and his, his family and the others are baptized that day and they become Christians. It's an, it's an amazing, beautiful story of how the gospel was, was given there to non-Jewish people, to the Gentile people. Well, that's what brings us back to this passage in 1 Peter. And so if you'll allow me, let's read today's passage and let me make just a brief comment. And then I'd like to spend the balance of the time just giving this passage to you and let you, with those that you're in the room with, uh, uh, spend some time really allowing this passage to wash over you and discussing how does this apply to you, to your community and your work. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read the passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So Peter begins this passage today by saying, you prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace, that good word that will come uh, from Jesus on the day that he is revealed. And then he says, you be like obedient children. Now remember, this part of 1 Peter is written to Gentiles. And Peter says to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, you as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions you had when you lived in your former ignorance. The word ignorance there is the word agnostic. So don't live the way you did when you were agnostic. But just as he who called you is catch this word, just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do. Now that word holy, remember, means to be set apart. The opposite of the word holy is the word common. And in here he says, just as the one who is set apart as unique, as holy, just as he is holy, so you be holy in all you do. And then Peter says, that reminds me of a verse. And then he quotes a verse uh, from his Bible, from the Old Testament. And he says, the verse says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, it's important to know that anytime one of the writers of the New Testament quotes a scripture, that it's meant to take you back to the original uh, scripture itself, to give you its, its fullest meaning. Um, you know, this is these letters were written in a time when they didn't have Google, they didn't have their Bible on a, 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 a smartphone or some kind of device where you could just look things up. Uh, they had to memorize large amounts of Scripture. So instead of quoting large, long pieces of Scripture, they would just give you a little phrase, you know, from the passage. And if they just gave you the, the little uh, phrase or a few words, then you would be able to resurrect in your mind all uh, that that passage was about. I could probably do the same thing with you now. If I were to quote just two words of a song, if I just said, amazing grace, well, maybe the whole song, amazing grace comes to mind. And it might even bring to mind times where you've sung that song, you've heard it, you know, sung before. Um, if If you know what that feels like to hear just a couple of words and for the whole song to come back to mind, then you'll know what it was like for the first readers of this passage to hear this phrase, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What would come to mind is that entire passage. So it's a good habit anytime that you see a passage in Scripture that's quoted. Um, find, usually at the bottom of the page, it will the Bible will have listed there uh, where that reference comes from. And then you can turn and, and look up that Scripture and see what was, what was on the mind of the writer when they were, when they were writing this. And so you can, you can look back and see what Peter was probably thinking about when he made this statement and he wrote this phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, because you know where that passage comes from? 
It comes from Leviticus. That passage is from Leviticus chapter 11, which is that whole chapter on how to tell the difference between a clean animal and an unclean animal. And here's where the whole story comes together. Writing to people who were followers of Christ, who were, were not Jews, but had been invited in to the family of God. And Peter writes to them and says, you don't have to live like the rest of the people around you because you are God's children. You can be holy because he is holy. And what comes to mind is, I remember when God taught me that lesson. That yes, there, there may be animals that are clean and unclean, but there is no such thing as a truly common human being. There's no such thing as an unholy human being. We can do things that are unholy and maybe become unholy because of sin. But God taught Peter, you don't call any person common or unclean. And what makes you holy is not something that you've done. In fact, it's because of what God has done for you. You've been ransomed, not with gold or silver. You have been bought back, purchased. You have been saved or restored by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And here he gives that gospel message again that Jesus, the one who was known before the world even began, but who was made known here at this period of time, it is by his blood that, that you are saved. And God raised him from the dead so that you, again, can rejoice because your hope and your faith are in God. Well, that's our passage for this week. Here's what I'd like you to do. Take some time to read uh, 1 Peter. And, and probably the best way to do this is just read uh, chapter 1, verses 1, and go all the way here to verse 21. And then uh, once you're through reading the passage, turn the video back on, and I'll have a few questions just to get the conversation going. But spend some time allowing yourself to grapple with and to uh, fully understand what this means for human beings to be made holy, to be made right again. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next week.